Hello, and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. Today, Henry and I are with Marianne Ivey, our System Director for Infection Prevention, who has led a central role in our struggle with COVID-19 over the past six months. Marianne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into infection prevention? Well, um, I have a nursing background uh, for more years than I care to discuss. Uh, I was uh, in infectious disease. I was the director of HIV services for the regional medical center at Memphis for eight years and then uh, made the jump into infection prevention some years ago and became the director there at Regional Medical Center, and then I was also a system director in uh, at Riverside Health Systems in Virginia before coming back to Memphis to join the Baptist team. Well, it's great to have you on today, Henry. You want to kick us off? Absolutely, Jake and Marianne. Thanks, thanks for joining us today. I I think at no time ever in my in my history in medicine uh, have I grown to appreciate infection prevention like I have since the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus entered our lives uh, earlier this year. Uh, can you give to me at, a, at a, a, a high level then your role in uh, investigating and um, participating in the prevention and analysis of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak? I work as a support system and a resource and a leader for all 22 hospitals. We have infection preventionists in all of those 22 hospitals. Uh, when needs arise in those hospitals with outbreaks or with clusters or with management of COVID patients, the team makes decisions together and um, sometimes I get lots of questions from all disciplines. So I work with all disciplines to design and uh, manage situations in different care settings and with different types of patient populations that, that may have contracted COVID. So I, I think what, it, what coronavirus, again, what COVID has done is uh, shine the light on the, the responsibilities of infection prevention. Take me through just the tra traditional responsibilities of what an um, um, infection preventionist brings to any facility or any, any one of our entities. Please. Well, I see infection prevention as the center of the wheel, so to speak, the center of the patient care wheel. Um, IP spans safety, quality, patient outcomes, and uh, regulatory compliance, to name a few. We are responsible from a regulatory perspective from everything from the back dock to the operating room to the kitchen uh, to the ICU. And so there are infection prevention opportunities everywhere in, in all facilities. And uh, it's incumbent upon the IP to master those guidelines and understand all those different care settings and how they ultimately impact patient safety. So uh, in the pandemic, uh, it, it, the IP is, is, is center to that, to the management of that as a, an educator, uh, as a coach, we have to observe processes and be sure that they're being adhered to to keep patients and staff safe. So everything from PPE to cleaning of equipment, patient movement, just pretty much the whole gamut uh, of infection prevention activities. And uh, many of these people don't commonly think of, but uh, we're pretty much uh, involved in almost every department in the hospital. So when you when you said the 
deck at the back. You mean you infection prevention gets involved at, even when shipments come in, how these shipments are allocated, how they move through the care setting all the way to the patient discharge. Be a little more specific there. What do you what do you get involved in with shipments coming in, for example? Well, the handling of patient care supplies uh, is, is 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 very important to patient safety. So supplies and uh, patient care equipment that comes in through the back dock, there's there's everything from the way that those boxes are handled, uh, how they're uh, put away, uh, how they move through the facility, um, the ultimate storage of those supplies and what conditions, humidity, uh, the cleanliness of the area. And then in the summertime, of course, we're dealing with things like the back dock door is open and um, you know, being sure that we aren't uh, opening ourselves up to intrusion by pests or rodents and things of that nature. So there's all types of activities that we're involved in, but the, the safety of patient care supplies and equipment is very important um, to our patients' outcomes. So Marianne, I envision uh, uh, an infection preventionist walking around with his or her little checkbox and walking through the facility, making sure that <laughs> with your white gloves, you're, you're touching everything, making sure that cleanliness and proper handling of all equipment, all, all anything that touches a patient uh, is managed and handled appropriately. Is that a, a fair way to envision your work? Well, I don't know about the white gloves, but when I was a new nurse, I know I was taught that when you step into a room, your eyes should scan the entire room. And so you look at everything from the, the way the IV is dripping, the, the safety of the patient and, and the, the whole milieu. And um, it's the same with IP. As I'm walking through the hallways, I might be looking at uh, a process or at hand hygiene or at whatever I might be looking at. But on a, you know, as I'm walking, I may see something else that um, causes me to stop and, and investigate. So it's it's having that keen eye of being observant of a lot of different things at once and, and knowing what's significant and uh, requires intervention and, 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 and what you just kind of note and, and keep walking. But um, it, it, that, it can become rather complex. With that as a backdrop then, all right, so what were you focused on early on in the pandemic? What bothered you the most and what, what were you focused on early early on? Well, early on, we were operating under normal operating procedures, so to speak. We thought that this was similar to flu. And so we were treating it that way. And so our instructions to, we were out there teaching on PPE and uh, all of those things, just like we normally would with, with, with a flu-like illness. Quickly, we, be, we became aware that, of course, that wasn't totally true. COVID doesn't mind the rules and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't act like flu. So it had other characteristics that really kind of threw us all for a loop uh, in that it was uh, more aerosolized than a flu, a flu and, uh, which is droplet. And so all of the rules kind of went out the window. And COVID truly is a hybrid organism. Uh, and the more we're finding out about it, the more we're finding out that our conventional ways of handling COVID don't always work very effectively. So PPE... Uh, and the changing guidelines around PPE and the changing guidelines around patient movement, uh, isolation, things of that nature have been a challenge because it hasn't always been by our traditional rules. Aerosolization has become an everyday word for us in the last six months. But, but for those that, that are not knee-deep in the COVID management, 
Uh, would you explain what aerosolization means as opposed to droplet? Droplet organisms, those particles are very large and very heavy. And um, when a person sneezes, coughs, sings, laughs, they're expelled and they only go a short distance and they fall very quickly to the ground. So they're not uh, suspended in the air. The other end of the spectrum would be something like measles or TB, which is a very, very small particle and can, be, can travel very long distances on air currents. COVID lies somewhere in between the two. So uh, we know that there, is all, there are a lot of particles that are uh, suspended in the air for a period of time. No one really has been able to identify exactly how long, uh, right around the patient, particularly within uh, three to six feet of the patient. And that's why you, we've coined the term social distancing, because uh, six feet is considered a, a fairly safe distance. However, as we learn more about aerosolization, we may find that that is not always true, that in certain situations under certain humidity conditions um, and air currents that six feet might not be sufficient, but that is kind of the standard that we're going by right now. Uh, but as we learn more and more, I think we will see that the virus is more, is more aerosolized than we, than we truly think. So you mentioned you know, some of the guidelines from the CDC and, and some of the rules and how COVID is not stayed within the guidelines, stayed within the rules. You know, in the early days, those, that guidance was changing rapidly over time. Can you talk just a little bit about how IP works within the CDC guidance and uh, how do you all keep up with, with what is changing? Well, keeping up with it is a challenge. Um, CDC does send out communication, but it's not really in real time. So it requires a lot of vigilance, especially early on in a pandemic or in an in emerging disease. Uh, those guidelines can change daily. And so it's really just getting in there and, and, and looking at the guidelines, reading all the literature that you possibly can, you know, reviewing um, news such as Becker's and other things that, that, that shoot out updates. So just trying to stay on top of it is, is a, major, a major job, um, and IP, it is IP's role to help disseminate those changes. And as I said, that's sometimes difficult because it's frustrating for the staff because it's like, you, well, last week you told me this, and this week you're telling me that. And sometimes that can be um, very, very difficult. It requires a lot of education as to why sometimes things change, and that has certainly been the case with COVID. So, Marion, you bring up a really good point there, and and I've seen you um, have to pivot once, twice, sometimes three times a week with with your counsel to the frontline personnel to keep them safe. Um, what have you seen um, as far as any trends at work uh, in the healthcare environment? Trends at work regarding exposures for COVID nineteen. Have you seen anything in particular that concerns you? Yes, I think as humans, we want to be with each other. And it has, it has been very challenging for all of us to keep our social distancing and maintain a high level of PPE compliance, not only in our professional lives, but in our personal lives. We see a lot of exposures that result from these community exposures. Also, PPE is uncomfortable. It's, it's hot. It's summertime in the South. And, um, People get tired and uh, they will let their guard down 
because it, it, they're 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 just exhausted. So this is this is turning into uh, a marathon, not a sprint, and uh, it's that's really the biggest challenge with exposures right now in the casual environment where we let our guard down, whether it be in the lunchroom uh, at work or whether it's my sister's birthday and I'm going to go to this party and perhaps there might be family members there that I haven't seen in a long time and I really don't know uh, what type of social distancing and isolation that they have been engaged in. And so we let our guards down because we have priorities, personal priorities sometimes, uh, that get in the way. So I think that's been the biggest challenge is that this permeates everyone's lives, personal lives as well as professional lives. And can you speak a little bit about, you know, so you mentioned earlier walking around the facilities and noticing things that maybe others are not noticing. Have you seen any changes in maybe adherence to PPE amongst the staff? And, and what sort of trends have you seen with, with adherence to our, our guidelines for PPE? Well, first of all, I think our staff is very engaged. They want to do the right thing. Um, but as I said, they're, they, they get tired. N95 masks particularly are, are difficult to wear for long periods of time. We have a variety of N95 masks because of our supply chain challenges. That's another issue in that I might have one type of N95 today and I've got a different kind of N95 tomorrow. So am I wearing it correctly? And the other piece is because we, again, have, have um, had to break the rules, um, an N95 is normally a, a, a single-use item and it is discarded. And now we're asking people, because of our supply chain difficulties, to reuse them for a you know, finite period of time. But during that shift, they have to maintain that N95 in a, a pristine way. And I think that that has been really challenging for the staff, how to negotiate the PPE that we're asking them to reuse and keep it clean and keep it safe uh, throughout that, that period. So I think that is the biggest challenge I'm seeing. People, people don't know what to do with it. They're, you know, they're, they're very frustrated with, with that piece. This may be a good time to just refresh on the maybe the three categories of isolation from the, the CDC that and, and where COVID falls into contact isolation, droplet or airborne. Um, you mentioned it's a hybrid. So what are we expecting our staff to wear when they're going to see a patient who is either confirmed COVID-19 positive or uh, maybe they have not had a negative test return and we're still waiting on that result and they're suspected? Well, COVID is classified as enhanced respiratory precautions. So it's contact isolation. Uh, it is droplet isolation, but it also has a, that aerosolized component. So we are asked to use N95 masks, uh, which we would normally only use in airborne situations uh, with COVID positive and suspect patients. And whenever we are doing aerosolizing procedures. Uh, aerosolizing procedures are challenging because that's everything from uh, breathing treatments, you know, nebulizers, to bronchoscopy, to intubation, to open suctioning, um, just, just a variety. C patients receiving CPAP and BiPAP, 
so that is really um, challenging. But so we ask uh, those individuals to wear that are dealing with those types of patients to wear the N95 and the shield, um, and in some of those situations, gowns and gloves as well. And then uh, we ask all other employees to wear a, fa a surgical face mask and a shield or goggles. Uh, shield is preferred uh, because it protects the mask as well and uh, provides the highest level of protection. So it's a lot of PPE. Can you contrast that with what we ask them to wear for just traditional flu? And, and do you see those guidance changing uh, now that we kind of have a little bit more information about how PPE is protective for healthcare workforce with COVID? Do you see the guidance on what to wear for, for flu-like illness changing? Well, with flu-like illness, um, when we were going to actually enter the room, that's droplet. So when we were going to actually enter the room to care for a patient up close, we were still asked to wear um, a mask and, and, and usually a fluid shield mask. So um, an open, just a shield over our eyes. With COVID, uh, of course, we want a tight fit around the eyes, and that's the big difference because of that little aerosolized uh, component between the two. Uh, I, don't, I don't really see the, the guidance changing for flu if that's truly what's confirmed, but um, what is frightening is that in a few short months we will be faced with people who are presenting for care that have flu-like symptoms and we're not going to know which one it is for a period of time. <coughs> so it probably will increase the PPE that's used simply because we've got a higher volume of patients that are presenting initially with those with those symptoms. Marianne, may we talk just a little bit about exposures and the way in which we categorize an exposure or potentially an outbreak. Take me through the various terms of that you think about from when we're talking about an exposure versus an outbreak, what, what's the difference in those two terms? And are there different types of outbreaks that, that, you, that you think about? Well, there are many different types of outbreaks. Usually they're bacterial, um, you know, waterborne organisms that, you know, become, we find that we have people that have a certain pneumonia for a certain organism or um, bacteremia. Um, so there's all different kinds of outbreaks that are investigated, tuberculosis, um, those are some of the more common ones that, that you see, measles, um, but COVID is a little bit different. Um, so we have, we're kind of categorizing outbreaks right now with COVID as when we see hospital acquired cases of COVID, and particularly if they're in clusters uh, in certain par parts of the facility. Uh, those are of great concern, and of course, we're treating those in a traditional outbreak uh, format. And uh, of course, the other part of that is the exposure that's, that occurs to the staff. Um, and so we are contract, contact tracing all of those individuals. They have to be uh, interviewed to determine what level of exposure they had. So were they wearing all of the required PPE, recommended PPE? Uh, when they interacted with the patient, uh, how long were they with the patient. So um, if they were wearing everything they should have been wearing and everything was done correctly, 
um, then that's considered a low risk exposure. But if they took their mask off or it got knocked off, the shield got knocked off, something happened like that, uh, then they then they go into a, a high risk exposure category and they have to be uh, furloughed for a period of time. So until we're sure that they have not uh, contracted COVID. So there's the, the the possible exposure that may occur without an outbreak, and then there um, are outbreaks that occur uh, in conjunction with exposures. And so we have to determine was, uh, to the best of our ability, where the breakdown was. Was it a process? Was it a person? Um, and so there's a lot of investigation that goes into that. Well, let me ask you, Marianne, we have nursing homes within our system, and certainly across the country, nursing homes have been uh, of great concern. Uh, if and Going back to the early case in Washington State, which I think brought everyone's attention forward about how do you manage that type of environment. Um, walk me through a hypothetical uh, outbreak within a nursing home, and how do you then decide how do we partition off the the exposed uh, how then do you uh, think about this particular population who may have some cognitive dysfunction and it may be difficult to to, to control their behavior walk, walk me through a little bit about how one might think about an outbreak within a nursing home or environment not not too dissimilar well, a long-term care facility, um, that type of an environment, any type of communal living environment presents very unique challenges. Um, and uh, in dealing with that, uh, here at Baptist, we've been very fortunate to have a team of professionals uh, who have addressed all different types of uh, aspects of, of that challenge. So everything from the physical plant uh, where you would need to try to segregate those individuals that you had identified as positive or uh, exposed and from the rest of the population. Uh, if, if, the, if the patients have dementia particularly, you can't confine them to their rooms. They are going to be roaming about the unit and they touch things and they touch people. Um, and so you have to have a very different approach to PPE, for instance. So the staff is challenged with having to wear PPE pretty much constantly uh, and use a little bit different approach to the management of that PPE. Um, how frequently are we changing it? Are we gelling gloves, you know, washing, cleaning our gloves with hand sanitizer as opposed to our hands uh, because we have to keep the gloves on all the time? Uh, things like that that have been challenging in those environments and you know how do we keep the patients safe and so cordoning off those areas and 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 adjusting the air pressure uh, looking at uh, negative pressure in a certain part of the facility as opposed to positive pressure so our facilities uh, team has been very very important in the, in the management of those types of outbreaks but it does require a completely different um, process um, the other piece of that is testing, uh, routine testing of patients and employees in, um, for a period of time until the outbreak has resolved. You use the term cordoned off or wall off. What do you, what do you mean? Do you mean literally putting up a wall or how do you, how do you reconstruct a, a unit such as that? 
it's a construction barrier. It's a construction barrier that we commonly use for construction activities in the hospital where we have to uh, protect patients from dust and from uh, other debris that might be part of a construction project. And so um, our facilities team has brought in those materials and, um, and that wall, so to speak, can be moved um, as patients are um, considered immune and might be moved from one area to another or we move more patients in or out and that wall can be adjusted and moved. Uh, then there's a portable we'll say negative pressure um, device. There's a machine that's going to help us to adjust the air pressure so that that air is being taken out of the facility as opposed to being dumped back into the air handler. So there's there's just, it's, it's complicated, but uh, as I said, our facilities teams have, have helped us immensely in trying to um, keep those patients safe in that unique environment. So you work very closely with the facilities team, understanding airflow and negative versus positive pressure. So a positive pressure environment is the operating room. We're trying to push, push the air away from the patient and a negative pressure is we're trying to pull, pull the air away. Explain to me the difference between those those two terms and where where positive pressure is used and where negative pressure is used in the facility. Well, negative pressure room um, pulls the air into the room and out. It gets funneled out into the environment away from the air handler and other patients. So commonly you think of negative pressure with like tuberculosis. So we don't want that air going back out into the hallway. Um, from that patient's room. So it, we're, we're pulling air into the room and then it's exhausted. Um, positive pressure room uh, does, does just the opposite. So it's pulling, it's pulling air out of the room into the, into the hallway. Okay. Thank you. Erin, can you tell us just a little bit about how the strategies have evolved with infection prevention over the last six months and, and what are the current challenges that you're facing? With COVID-19, um, I think the biggest challenge for infection prevention is in any pandemic or any outbreak, and this one, of course, is is, is prolonged. Um, is managing all of the pandemic requirements. You know, there, we we're, we're compelled to do uh, rounds and out there doing education and looking at PPE and doing in a in a much more robust way than perhaps you would do on a routine day, um, and also balancing other patient safety and IP initiatives um, such as C. diff or MRSA uh, reduction or CLABSI reduction, balancing all of those activities along with, as we were just discussing, um, required involvement in construction activities or um, looking at sterile storage and food and nutrition and all those EOC type things, regulatory uh, preparedness that is required, which is difficult on a good day. So I think it's just the time management and um, being sure that we're not neglecting something that is very important, such as um, CLABSI or CAUTI prevention when we're dealing directly with pandemics. That's a good point, and we have not talked about those those hospital-acquired infections quite yet. How has COVID-19 affected our rates of those? You know, are more patients that are are we seeing more patients with central lines that are not being changed, resulting in more CLABSIs, or or what are you seeing? 
Well, we've done very well with our CLABSIs overall, but we have seen an uptick in um, CLABSIs in COVID patients. Um, COVID patients have multiple lines, um, sometimes four and five central lines. Uh, it's kind of uh, mind-boggling. And so those patients, of course, are very debilitated, receiving uh, many, many antibiotics and other treatments. And so those lines get entered multiple times a day. Uh, so that's created a challenge. Um, also, just with, the, just with the pathology of the disease, so there, there, there are challenges that are related to CLABSI. So CLABSI is, is one that we're keeping our eye on. So far, the CDC has not given us any type of exception for COVID. So we think ultimately perhaps there will be some sort of exclusion there, but right now there, there's there's, or risk adjustment is what that really means. It doesn't mean that it's not still a bloodstream infection, but there will be some sort of risk adjustment there. But so far, that's not the case. So just being sure that we are doing our normal processes with those patients, even though we don't want to enter their rooms very frequently for PPE conservation, um, we want to cluster our activities. But we want to be sure that when we're in there, we're still assessing that dressing and assessing that line and um, doing all of our normal evidence-based processes that we know uh, are so important to prevent CLABSI, CAUTI, and all of these other hospital-acquired infections. So, Marianne, let me go back to, to my early, early uh, visual of you walking around with a clipboard and white gloves. So walk me through point prevalence and doing uh, walk-arounds, how, how, how and what is, what does that mean, and how do you go about doing that? Well, a walk around is a routine activity that, uh, or walk about, you hear it called. Um, IP does daily. Uh, so that's just basically walking my areas that I'm responsible for, and, and as I said before, just kind of having a global eye, uh, looking at anything that, that might need attention. Um, point prevalence is more of a, I'm taking a snapshot. So if I want to know um, who in, in a unit has, um, I'm having an outbreak of MRSA, we'll say, and I want to know today uh, who in this unit has MRSA, then I'm going to test everybody on that unit to see what the point prevalence is. This is a snot, snapshot today of what that looks like. And, um, or I'm going to go do central line audits to see if all of my normal processes that I'm supposed to be doing are uh, in place. It's a snapshot of, uh, of what's going on, basically. Well, thank you, Marianne. I know we're running short on time, but are there any key takeaways that you want to leave with our provider community? I would just ask everyone to remain vigilant, even as our positivity rates of COVID continue to hopefully decline in the next few weeks. We are facing flu season. And just to remain vigilant in our professional and personal lives, in our social distancing, our basic infection prevention, hand hygiene, uh, our masking, uh, because that's what keep, we keep each other safe. That's how we keep each other safe. And that's how we keep our patients safe. Thank you so much for that. Henry, any last words? No, Marianne, I, you know, I think we're all greatly appreciative of the work that all of our infection preventionists uh, are doing and, and uh, perhaps a benefit, if you will, of COVID-19, if I can possibly use that term, would be 
highlighting the key role that infection prevention plays uh, in the control of all infections, not just, not just this particular virus, but in helping us keep our environment safe and our patients and coworkers safe. So we appreciate you coming on today and sharing with us the, the work of the infection prevention is the key role that, that you all play, uh, especially during this pandemic. And then prayerfully, once the pandemic is over, the, the ongoing work of the infection prevention. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. All right, and thank you everyone for listening to Right Care at Baptist. Remember that if you go to the, the podcast uh, show notes, you can find the survey for CME. Thank you so much, and we will talk again shortly. You did good.